0: Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello. My guest on today's show is Greg Lidman, co-founder and chief investment officer of LibraMax, an $8 billion asset management firm specializing in structured products. Greg co-founded LibraMax in 2010 after a long tenure at Deutsche Bank focused on the space. He was one of the originators and the literal epicenter of the subprime mortgage short position during the financial crisis. Michael Lewis featured Greg in The Big Short, And Ryan Gosling played him in the movie based on the book. Our conversation covers Greg's background, story of the subprime short, structured product market, and launching Libramax. We discuss his investment strategy, research process, portfolio construction, trading, competitive landscape, and market outlook. We close with Greg's experience being portrayed by a Hollywood star on the big screen. I hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, this week, Why not reach out to that friend of yours? You know the one I'm talking about. There's someone you've known forever and trust and love so much. You probably only see each other maybe every year or two these days, but whenever you get together, it's like no time had passed at all. Go ahead, reach out to them and just say hi. When it comes up what inspired you to reach out, just tell them you thought of them while listening to the Capital Allocators podcast. And maybe they want to have a listen too. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy... conversation with Greg Lipman. Greg, great to see you. Nice to see you, Ted. Well, why don't we go all the way back to your background?
1: Sure. Well, I don't know how far we want to go back. Ted and I went to high school together and people are the same. My parents were cleaning out my bedroom when I was about 25 and they gave me some papers and included in that was my second grade report card. And I was just then at the same time getting my review from my employer at the time, Credit Suisse First Boston, and you put my 25-year-old employment review next to my second grade report card, and the strengths and the weaknesses are the exact same. <laughs> so people are who they are, and you can work harder to be a better person or, or be happier or calmer or whatever it may be, but we each are the person that we were sort of made to be, and I haven't changed that much. So it's sort of interesting that you have some knowledge or memory. We went to a small high school, so we certainly knew each other. And to this day, I remember the names of your brother and your sister. So yeah, we know each other. How did you get
0: onto Wall Street originally?
1: So it's kind of ironic or funny story, I guess, which is that my family was in the real estate business, small-time real estate business. I assumed I would go into the real estate business. And I graduated college in 91, which was one of the times that was hard to get a job. So two things happened. One, it was hard to get a job. And two, I read the book, Liar's Poker by Michael Lewis. And I said, wow, this sounds amazing. And I had never heard of really Wall Street career. I just didn't come from a background that that was talked about or I knew anyone who did that or anything. So I read the book and I thought, this is interesting. And while still sort of trying to get jobs in real estate, I tried to get a job on Wall Street as well. And although I was cum laude, I graduated unemployed because 91 was a bad year. I remember going to interviews and people saying, wait, you're cum laude economics and you're unemployed? Like I had a Two and a half GPA, and I majored in biology. And I got a job in M and A banking in Goldman Sachs like right out of college. I'm like, yeah, well, you graduated before the '87 crash, and I graduated <laughs> after, so it was a different time. Just trying to find a job, living at home after college, trying to find a job, and taking any sort of interview I got. And you know, some of it is luck. And then eventually, I was hired at a middle office type job at Credit Suisse. I started November fourth, ninety one. And at the time, there was no Bloomberg. Really, Bloomberg was existed, but it was a very, very minor thing. And all the banks had their own internal mortgage-backed security departments and and whatnot. And so there was a huge demand for for people to call up the mortgage servicers and find out how many loans were delinquent and just really rudimentary type of stuff. And so I started there. And I got really lucky. I think one of your questions at the end, because I'm a fan of your podcast, is, you know, what were some of your mentors? So I'll jump to that, which is one of the people that was working in the structuring group. I was really eager, asking him a bunch of questions. And he said, you don't know enough to ask me questions. So I've taken the liberty of of circling which of the training program videos you should watch, because you weren't in the training program since you started in November. And I've bought you a copy of Fabozzi Handbook of Fixed Income Securities, and I've circled the chapters you should read. When you read this book and you see all these videos, then you will know enough to ask me questions. But until then, don't ask me any questions. So (laughs) that tough love really helped catalyze my thing. And then I also was lucky that the group that he was in merged with the group that I was in. So then I was part of more of a front office-y type of role. And at the time, there was something now called Intex. There's a lot of third-party software providers that didn't exist back then. And so each firm had their own internal modeling software. And basically what it meant was somebody had to read the documents, understand how the plumbing worked in each of these securitizations in terms of if different things happened, which bonds got paid, which bonds got losses, things like that, and type that into an in-house computer language and put their name on it. So if there was ever a mistake, you knew who made the mistake. And even though I graduated, I didn't know anything about computers, because it was right before the big computer wave, I learned how to do this in-house language, and I was really good at it right away. And I knew then that this was something that made sense to me, how these things worked.
0: How did you find your way into the trading desk?
1: So... I found that the trading people seemed to have a more interesting job and maybe they made more money than some of the other people and they weren't working the crazy long hours like I was as an analyst. So so what I decided to do is every day I worked on the 18th floor and the trading floor was on the third floor. So I would go downstairs and if anybody was traveling for work or out sick or on vacation, I would just sit in their desk and I would do my job and I wouldn't say anything to anyone, but I would just sit there and do my job. And so one, people would see me. Two, I would hear them talking and pick up something. And just, I thought I would be this way, top of mind, if they ever thought something. So when the BP's trader at the time needed a a second person, I was sort of the logical person to do it. One, I was known for being really good at my job, and I looked up in the database and I had structured more of these deals than all the other four people put together. And two, I was always around. So I was invited to join the BP's desk, which was the sleepier backwater part of the business. It wasn't really flow trading. There weren't a lot of trades. We sometimes didn't even do one trade in a day. But it was more about really understanding the risks inherent in, in these structures and the leverage in them. And it was not portfolio management. We, we would buy things, not really knowing who we would sell them to or when we would sell them to, as opposed to somebody who's trading in more of a flow product. And I sort of thought of us as like the track team, in that the agency mortgages were sort of the football team, and they were doing tons of trades, and everybody wanted to. Be around, And the salespeople were the cheerleaders, if you will. And they all wanted to be around the agency, pass-through traders. Those guys were doing huge trades and whatnot. And the AAA mortgage, the non-government guaranteed mortgage, they were maybe the baseball team. They were also doing these big trades, and everybody wanted to talk to them. And we were kind of these guys in the corner doing these very small trades. But because the trades were complicated, because they were illiquid, because not that many people did it, our margins were really big. And so even though we weren't doing as many trades as some of the other areas, it was still pretty profitable. And I always viewed it, as I used to say to people, in some ways what we were doing were more like being art dealers than two-year treasury traders. And that appealed to me, the intellectual aspect of it appealed to me.
0: So you go from, I guess, that early 90s doing this work for a long time and then eventually come into this subprime mortgage short, which became, among other things, a marquee for you. I'd love to hear the story of how you got to that trade. During the period of time between
1: when I first started and and we got to that trade, I became sort of known for doing all of the sort of unusual esoteric trades. So, there you know, securitizations really are just backed by cash flows. And you can do securitizations backed on mortgage bonds or credit card loans, boat loans, really anything. And, and one of the things we had worked on it was after the big tobacco settlement, the tobacco lawyers didn't want to wait for their money for many, many years from the States. So, they securitized their future rights to get these payments. So, so securitization really can do anything. And I was involved in a lot of the more esoteric ones. So, I always consider myself like a, a thinker or an intellectual. And because the B pieces in general and really structure products, specifically even the AAAs, each bond is somewhat unique. And even the AAAs where there's maybe a big tranche, maybe it's $100 million, the ability to short something when there's no borrow doesn't really exist. So it was always the case that you just really thought about, well, how much do I like them? Do I like them or do I love them? But you couldn't really hate them. And then with the emergence of these derivatives in 2004 and 2005, it became the case that actually you could bet on no. And you never could bet on no before. So that, considering myself an intellectual, I, I wanted to do the work to find out, well, how much do I like them? And I'd really never thought about it before, to be honest. And so the first thing I did is I worked with a colleague and I said, let's break America out into quartiles at a zip code level based on home price appreciation. And let's look and see what the defaults look like. And so we we looked at the 2000 vintage This is back in in 2005, and five years was about enough time to really know what would happen. And the 2001, 2002 vintages were slightly less seasoned, and certainly the 2003, 2004, you couldn't really discern much from them. So what we found was for the 2000 vintage, the top 25% of American home prices generally corresponded to California, Florida, places like that, where the loan balances were higher than other parts than, say, the Midwest. So they were 25% of the loan balance but they were about 62% of the bond balance because the houses are, are worth more. What we saw was that after six years, the default rate in places in the top quartile where homes were going up 12 to 14% a year, the default rate was still 6 or 7%. Now, it's kind of amazing that people are defaulting even though their house has gone up by more than 50% in value. That was sort of shocking to me that you have an asset that's way in the money and you still default. What was also interesting was that there was a small loss taken when those people defaulted. So, you have an asset where, just for simplicity's sake, person buys a house for 100, they borrow 80, the house is worth 140, 150, and we're only getting 70 cents back. The guy borrowed 80, we're getting 70, we're losing 10 cents. So, there was gigantic slippage on this, and that was alarming. But if you looked at the bottom quartile for houses, they were going up 3 to 4% per year, and 28% of the people were defaulting. And we were losing 50, 55 cents in the dollar when they did, because of the similar type of slippage. So I saw that, and I said, geez, you know, someday home prices are going to go up 3 or 4% a year in California. And apparently when they do, maybe it won't be quite as bad as Ohio or, or whatever these other states were, but it's going to be bad. And these bonds that are backed by them, the triple B, triple B minus tranches, just to oversimplify it, if the losses are 8%, the bonds get 100. And if the losses are 9%, the bonds get zero. And so if you assume a sort of a 50% severity you're talking about 16% of loans defaulting and the bonds are covered and 18% of loans defaulting and the bonds are zero. And we already know that the bottom quartile of America, like 28% of the people were defaulting. So I looked at this and I thought after I got the shock over, eventually these bonds are going to default. But what I know right now is they're paying somewhere between six and 10 to one to bet against them. And I think the chances of it happening are maybe three to one against me. And if you spend your whole life looking for things that are three to one long shots that pay six to one, two out of every three times you walk away empty-handed, but if you look in your pocket, it's really full. And that was what attracted me to it.
0: What year did you start doing this work?
1: 2005 in earnest, maybe a little bit 2004. I mean, I know that we put the short on in a meaningful way in late 05.
0: And did you have a sense of who else was on the same side of the trade at that point in time?
1: Well, like no one. Because first of all, the <laughs> only way to be short it was to actually have these derivatives. So it was a nascent stage of the derivatives. There weren't that many that were outstanding at the time. And it's all over the counter. So it's possible that somebody had a gigantic short and I knew nothing about it, right? But for every short, there had to be a long. So I didn't think that many people were, were involved, but I certainly can't say
0: that for sure. How did that play out over the next couple of years?
1: Well... 2006 was a year where it didn't work in the sense that, as everyone knows, the adage right in the short run, it's a voting machine; in the long run, it's a weighing machine. So the year of 2006 was a year where it was a voting machine, and there was people I'm sure remember the conundrum that Greenspan talked about, and that rates were low, and people had to there was excess savings glut and whatnot. So worldwide, people were looking for spread products and and so on. So 2006, I would say, was a year where. The voting machine won, and the price of these assets, even as the fundamentals began to deteriorate, didn't move.
0: When did that start to shift?
1: February of 2007, the prices started to move, and I began to have a little bit of notoriety for the trade. So I had been involved in the trade for over a year before it worked in any sort of meaningful way.
0: And As you went out and shared the trade with, say, people in the hedge fund community, what did you find in terms of the different appetites of people- to invest in something that was so counter to common knowledge at the time.
1: It was a really fascinating experience in that people do all different kinds of things. You had people who would say, literally a couple of hedge funds said, well, this is a three to one long shot. I only do things that I think make money. And I would say at the beginning of each of these meetings, My goal at the end of this meeting is to convince you that this is no worse than a three-to-one long shot. I'm not even saying that I think it's a three-to-one long shot. I might actually think it's going to happen. But I just want to convince you it's a three-to-one long shot and explain to you why it's a six or nine-to-one payer. And there was the odd person who was like, I don't do three-to-one long shots. I'm like, but you understand it pays way more than that. So people who clearly didn't really understand what I was saying, but understood, hey, wow, this is a six or nine-to-one payer. This guy's really excited about it. He seems kind of smart. I'm just going to throw a little bit in to people who got really in the weeds and really understood it almost to their detriment. Because what you could do is the names that the broader market thought were good, there was an infinite supply of those names. The names that the broader market thought were not so good, there was less of a supply. So the guys that almost got too smart for their own good, they were focused only on shorting the worst ones
0: of which there was a limited supply. So it was fascinating to see how people reacted. So if you go full circle You started getting into the business reading Liar's Poker by Michael Lewis. You're doing this esoteric credit stuff. And a couple of years later, Ryan Gosling's playing you in a movie. What was that experience like going from trading stuff and fighting the crowd to getting something right and then all of a sudden it's on the silver screen?
1: Well, it didn't feel like all of a sudden it was on the silver screen for sure. What was an interesting experience was sort of fighting to maintain a position and then just a few weeks after that, being on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. So I went from being Chicken Little to cover the Wall Street Journal in just a matter of maybe not days, but certainly not more than weeks. So that, I would say the time to Mr. Gosling playing me in a movie, that was a little bit longer than that. And how does that feel? I mean, it's certainly,
0: there's a lot less appealing people to play you in a movie <laughs> than Ryan Gosling. So I, I guess I'm grateful for that. So you mentioned, and something they portrayed with Michael Burry in the movie, of how hard it can be to hold on a position. And I'm wondering what you learned from having done that successfully.
1: Being where I am now, I understand it more deeply than I did that. I mean, I had to maintain my position at the bank and not everyone at the bank agreed with it at all times. I ultimately had to, if anything, say, you know, I'm not taking it off. Fire me if you want, but I'm not taking it off. But as a hedge fund manager, it's a lot harder, right? Because people just send in a redemption notice and they say, I'm not talking to you. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I'm just redeeming. So I would say that in some ways it was easier for me. I mean, in some ways it was harder because I had one investor and they had daily liquidity. So that's different than a hedge fund where it's quarterly and you have a variety of investors. But I saw the people every day that were my investors. And in some ways it w- was easier to maintain than when you have investors all over the world who don't necessarily want to hear from you.
0: What was it like pivoting off of that to first just going long the assets and then not really being in an elephant hunting mode, not seeing a trade with that kind of nine to one risk reward?
1: Well, I think patience is one of the most important things for an investor to have. So I think not trying to hit a home run all the time is an important skill and discipline and not one one that everyone has. So so that would be the first thing I would say. And, And ultimately, look, I think That in the same way that the short was a time where you said there's an asymmetric reward in terms of being short then because you could only lose so much and you could make a huge amount. And when the bonds were trading at 20 cents, 40 cents on the dollar, it was an asymmetric reward the other way, which was that they're not worth zero because they pay some amount of interest. They're not going to be worth nothing. And if actually the defaults are not 80%, but 40%, this bond that I can buy at 30 cents on the dollar, worst case, we're worth 15. Best case, worth 70. You sort of start to say, I'm either going to double my money or I'm going to lose half my money. And I think the chances of me doubling my money is much greater than losing half my money. You're supposed to do those trades.
0: Before we get into your transition to forming Libra, what was esoteric credit became this more established structured credit market. And I'd love to hear your perspective on how that transition happened.
1: Sure. I think basically it had always been a small insular side market. And then as a result of what happened during the big short, lots of multi-strategy funds heard about structured credit and in many cases did the short. So they understood it now in a way that they had hired people now. So it became something that used to be completely unrelated to broader markets and had its own little group of people that invested in it and they were only tangentially interested in what happened to other markets, to something that became more integrated. And when you think about these large multi-strat funds where they're buying high yield, they're buying equities, they're buying emerging markets, they're buying structured products. And so they're looking constantly at the relative value of the different things. And so I think that our market has become more integrated in other markets and therefore the price moves are somewhat more connected and correlated
0: than they were back then. What were the different categories of these structured product assets?
1: I think one of the things that makes it exciting to do it right now, and I think the reason that there's a lot of alpha that can be mined there, is you can sort of slice the universe a bunch of different ways. We have four sector teams, and each of them is manned by a person. So our sectors, the way we describe them, are consumer ABS... RMBS, CMBS, and CLOs. And that's sort of one really simple way to do it and say, hey, we're 25% RMBS and we're 35% CMBS or whatever the case may be. And a different way to look at it would be to say, well, how many of your portfolio is double B rated or single B rated or triple B rated or what have you, regardless of the type of collateral that it is, right? So that's a different way of slicing it and thinking about risk, which is not collateral based, but ratings based or leverage in the capital structure. Another is seasoning. Some of the deals were issued 10, 20 years ago. And the way those structures have evolved over time and the loan to value ratio of the underlying collateral is very different. So a double B that was issued in 2012, and it's still rated double B for whatever reason, doesn't look anything like a double B that was issued in 2022, but they're both double Bs. So if you ask me how many double Bs do you own? One answer is, well, I own two. Another is, well, the 2012 one, it has none of the same characteristics as the 2022 one. So there's all kinds of different nuances in the space to express one's interest in investing.
0: There was this wave at the time of all these types of assets sitting on bank balance sheets and now sitting more in the hedge fund community. You effectively participated in that by switching over. What was it that caused you to want to form your own hedge fund? Sure.
1: My father was a small businessman. I always had a certain amount of interest in starting a company. I think inertia is a very powerful thing, right? You have a job at a bank, it pays a relatively good salary none of the risk is yours. If you lose a lot of money, you just get fired. You don't lose any money. You don't have the hassle and the risk of setting up a company was really, for me in the beginning, for a while and still to this day, like this desk, I own this desk. And if we ever close Libramax, like I'm going to sell this desk for something. And when you work at a bank, you own nothing. And so that was different. But the inertia of not starting it is one, I have a good salary. Two, I don't actually have to go find desks to buy. I don't have to rent office space. I don't have to hire a compliance department. I don't have to do anything. So while I had this sort of interest in starting a hedge fund for a long time, the inertia of working at a place where where most of that stuff is taken care of for you is powerful and you're making an income and whatnot. And then after the great financial crisis, we had one, I had a certain amount of notoriety that I thought could raise money Part of the, Michael Lewis's book. Two, we thought that the asset class was really attractive in the aftermath of the GFC, that returns would be sort of easy in the beginning. And those two things put together, we'd have an opportunity to raise money and we'd have good returns for a few years. And then you're off to the races, right? A lot of institutions want to wait until you're in three years in business. And so we thought we'd get off the ground and we'd have at least three good years. And then we'd see where things went from there. Truth be told, I just got to a point where at the bank, I felt. I wanted something less bureaucratic. I wanted less red tape. I wanted to see what I could do as an entrepreneur and take the chance of seeing how it went. When I started my fund, I went to many of the people I had done the short with and sort of said, hey, I'm starting this new business. You're a big hedge fund guy. I made you some money back then. Could you put some money in my fund? And quite a few people did, but if you had given me the list of say 40 people I called and you told me, write a list of the 20 most likely and the 20 least likely, I would have got like three right. Like three of the 20 most likely gave me money and 17 of the 20 least likely gave me money, which was really an interesting psychological experiment just to see how people repay a good turn and and who does and who doesn't, things
0: like that. How did you set that initial investment strategy? You mentioned you felt like you could own a bunch of assets that were going to be worth a lot more. And that sounds like a medium term kind of tactical trade compared to a, a more evergreen investment strategy.
1: One of my pet peeves is people call structured products a trade as opposed to an asset class, which I disagree with. And I think that, first of all, I've been doing it 32, 33 years. So it's been a life for me, not just a trade. When you start something, you can dub yourself whatever you want. And either people give you money or they won't. But one thing I've learned in the 12 years, it's very hard to then change. You can claim anything you want to claim. But afterwards, if you try to change that, people say, well, that's style drift. So we, we said, all right, if we're focused on what we do, will attract assets, not really thinking that down the line, if we'd said, hey, we're really smart people and we could do anything and we could buy Greek bonds if we want and we could buy Malaysian equities, we can't do that now because we didn't say back then that was something we would do. We were very focused on structured products and we think there's this great opportunity in mortgage-backed securities right now. You can buy them to a 12 or 14% yield to really onerous assumptions that have a lot convexity to being better then worse. You were buying them to a 12% yield to 85% of the people defaulting on their mortgages. Could it be more than 85%? Maybe. But like not everyone is going to default. And as it turned out, like 40% of the people defaulted. A lot, but what you learn in investing is it's not if things are good or bad, it's all about are things better or worse than expectations. And at the time, the expectations for mortgage-backed securities we felt were just too conservative and there was a lot of room for things to get better and a lot of likelihood that things would be better and not a lot of room for things to get worse. And so when we started, we were very focused on the RMBS trade. And we told people we would expand across structured products, which is what we've done.
0: What steps did that take over the last 12 years from that initial focus on RMBS to where you are today?
1: So I would say, I mean, there's two different things. One is the focus on our original hedge fund and growing the business and two on the asset classes. So like when we started... RMBS was maybe 75% of our assets, and it's mostly been somewhere between 15 and 30 for the last handful of years, right? As the RMBS trade became less attractive relative to other things, we moved into other things. I'll give you one example. Student loans really lagged the recovery, and we looked at the student loan opportunity a few years after we launched the company, and we said, this sounds like subprime. In the subprime case, people said, no one's going to pay these mortgages. 80% of the people are going to default, and we're going to recover nothing, And there was a period of time where people said, all these student loans are bad. Everybody owes $200,000 and they work at Starbucks. Again, it's not a question of good or bad. It's a question of how bad. So we, first of all, increased significantly. Student loans at one point were 30% of, of our master fund. And they were like zero when we started the company. We at one point did one of the first of our sort of bespoke funds where we did a fund that was just on student loans. It was a private equity more kind of structure in terms of like locked up capital with a date certain on it. We were able to raise some money for that, which was returned profitably with returns, you know, in excess of the original hurdle and whatnot. So we've built a business over time that has a variety of different funds, some single investor, some single strategy with different types of
0: liquidity. So as the mortgage trade evolved we were always looking for other interesting traits to do. Talk a little bit about your investment process. Maybe start with portfolio management. So two aspects of that. One is the selection of which categories, which credits you're interested in. And the other part is you talked about how early on pre the derivative era in these instruments, it was just how much you liked something. How do you think about, in a hedge fund, the portfolio construction on both sides in these assets today?
1: Sure. It's a great question. I would say, first of all, the derivative market is a shadow of what it was back then. I think people sort of learn, like, if somebody wants to bet against something, they might know more than you. So we are now at a place where the majority of our hedges are more macro-like than micro-like. Certainly, there's the odd time where you can buy a residual and buy puts on the company that their main asset of the company is the residual that they own pro rata with you. So there are specific bespoke trades, but mostly the hedging is more macro than micro at this point. That's one thing that is different. So it's back to the sort of how much do you like them on the long side, then like them or hate them. I guess what I would say is one thing that is really attractive about the space is the esoteric nature of it. It remains somewhat resistant to sort of the quantification of most of, of investing. Some of that relates to each deal is different. So it's a little bit harder to do that because where it is in the capital structure, the specific loans backing it and things like that. The other is it remains an over-the-counter market, which basically means there are situations all the time where a bank in Japan or an investor somewhere in the world or the US, they need to sell an asset and they call an investment bank. And that investment bank calls the people that they think are most likely to buy it. Whereas if Facebook stock crumbles or or the tenure note soars, everybody knows that. And so no one can sort of, Maybe you can be right or wrong, but you have no knowledge of a situation that no one else does, right? So here, banks that show you assets enable you to buy things potentially at prices that are really, really attractive because of the lack of number of people looking at it. It's also the case that there's a lot of regulation remaining in our space. Some of that relates to Dodd-Frank, some of that relates to leverage on on banks. Our team is mostly investors who worked at banks. We know how banks work in terms of aged inventory policies, regulatory capital charges, things like that. So there's lots of situations where people are doing things for non-economic reasons. They're saying, hey, if I don't sell this aged inventory, I'm going to get a huge penalty. So it's cheaper for me to sell it cheap today than to get this huge internal penalty, right? So we're, we live for situations where people are doing things for non-economic reasons because of capital charges or age inventory, or where we can be the partner that responds quickly and favorably to banks. Hey, there's a seller of this, or we have limits on our risk because of Dodd-Frank and whatnot. So we can't position this. This bond's really cheap. This guy's desperate. If you can be quick with a reasonable price, you can buy it. So that permeates the whole business, and that has nothing to do specifically with- RMBS or CMBS or double B or single A. That has to do with just there's a lot of inefficiencies and opacity in the market. And we try to position ourselves to one, have the relationships to source those assets, two, to behave in a manner that people want to work with us. And then three, to have the internal technology to run the stuff quickly and be able to give people answers fast enough that enables them
0: to do their job. How does that underwriting process work such that a bank calls you up? And you can have a good sense of what this less liquid collateral is worth that you can capture that for a seller or whatever the case may be.
1: One of my partners, Glenn Perillo, runs an analytics division for us. And so we have a team of computer quant people that are building models that can quickly sift through the loans. Now, and I mentioned this before, back when I started, each bank had their own internal software that valued these bonds. Now there are companies that sell those. And the good news about it is, that everybody is looking at the same thing. And occasionally our guys are able to identify that there's a mistake because somehow they've read the document and the way that this structure works in this third-party software is not consistent with that. And that's obviously great if we see that. Well, it's really great if actually the bond is worth more than the third-party software says, and it's great to know it if the bond's worth less and to not buy it. So we have a robust team that builds models that can sift through the loans quickly and make different kind of AI related predictions about defaults, prepayments, whatnot. And so that that model will, will say, hey, this bond's worth 80 or 90 or whatever the case may be. And we know where we can buy it. We're not a quant shop in the sense that we don't take that price. But what we use this for is a sifting mechanism, right? So we'll put 10 bonds through the system and that system will say, hey, I think you should buy these five and you should avoid these five. Then we'll look at those five more closely and see what the humans think, right? So we're not, the machines help us figure out which opportunities to look at. I think a key part of success is which opportunities should we look at? So first of all, do we think the price is probably attractive? How competitive is the situation? How big is it? How long is it going to take us to have confidence in what we're doing? Right. So if we can't make a lot of money and it takes a lot of time to do it, we should skip that
0: one. What is that fundamental human part of the underwriting of these assets beyond what the machine spits out?
1: I think that's a combination of acumen and experience, right? So the team is reading the documents for themselves. The team has their own anecdotal view about different collateral types, loan types, geography. So we really like multifamily in the Southeast and we hate malls in the Pacific Northwest or whatever the case may be. So the model also reflects that, but the the human has a view of that as well. And then it's at the sector head level looking at the panoply of potential returns and saying, you know, we feel good or bad about the upside and the base case and the stress case, if you will. And and then there's the direction for me on high about the things that I want us to look at at any given time.
0: How do you construct a portfolio across these assets? There's a lot of ways to slice and dice
1: the portfolio and to construct it. And and so we, some of the computer system stuff helps us to stress test and shock the portfolio and see where does in aggregate the portfolio do well or do poorly. And, and what we're always trying to figure out is, can we modify our risk more cheaply internally? And what I mean by that, so like simple examples are some mortgage bonds do well when prepayments are high and some mortgage bonds do well when prepayments are low. So if you can buy the ones that do well when prepayments are high from people that are afraid prepayments are low and the opposite, you can get to a situation where you now have two bonds. One does great when prepayments are high and the other one does great when prepayments are low and they both do decent when prepayments are middle. If you can fuse those two together cheaply, you now own something that is somewhat indifferent to prepayments. So we're looking across collateral type, rating, structure. Are these bonds that do better when things are faster or slower from a prepayment from a default perspective? One interesting trade to do in commercial mortgages is to buy interest-only securities, where if there's a delay in the refinancing of a property, the value of those soars because they only get interest. And as soon as the property is refinanced, they're shut out. Whereas if you can put some of those together with things that are more credit sensitive in a time where it's hard for properties to be refinanced, that's bad for the credit sensitive bond. It's great from the interest only bond. So what's exciting about structured products is there's this huge array of different types of bonds, both collateral points in the capital structure, how leveraged they are in the capital structure, the things that make them go go well and go poorly and try to fuse that together. So what we want to make sure is two things. We want to love every bond we buy. We want to make sure that we don't always love the same kind of bond. Because if we love the same kind of bond, then we haven't insulated ourselves from that kind of risk. The way that things get into our portfolio are are two ways, right? There's top down and bottom up, right? And so the top down is me and the PM and the chief risk officer getting together with one of the senior traders on Mondays. And we go through each of our funds and we we set targeted gross, whether we want the gross to be higher or lower than it was last week. And then for each subsector, whether we want to have more or less, more or less double B CLOs, more or less single B CLOs, et cetera, et cetera. So that goes out to the team for every fund, right? So that's a top-down view of this is what we want. The bottom-up view is, and and I've alluded to this many times before, what's really exciting about the space is it's all over the counter. So even though we have this top-down view, it may come to pass that a bank calls us up and says, hey, we really need to move this bond today. And it's at a price that you would never have thought of when you guys gave that top-down directive, right? So the team will come to us with, hey, here's something that we can buy. It's not part of the top-down directive, but it's really attractive. So what we'll think about all the time is, we only want to buy bonds we love. We also want to understand how they fit into the rest of the portfolio. So what ends up happening anytime a bond comes that's particularly attractive, we either have to A, increase our gross, B, you have to sell something else. So if you like this bond enough, one of the other CMBS bonds you own, for example, you have to sell one of them. Or C, we like it so much that we're going to tell the ABS person that they have to sell a bond. So what we say all the time to the team is like, the master fund owns about 200 positions. If you want to take it from 200 to 201, it should be like one of the top 25. To get into the portfolio, it's got to be one of the better ones. So every time that happens, we're like, okay, this is definitely one of the better ones. Do we want to go from 200 to 201 positions? Or do we want to Cut one of the other ones. And so the way that we're set up is each set, nobody has dedicated capital. We're not a pod shop. If somebody wants to buy something, I'm deciding if we just increase our gross, if they have to fund it with a different bond that they own, or if we're going to fund it elsewhere. But no one can say, I have X dollars of capital and I'm sort of doing whatever I want with it. So you can see over time, there's some amount of evolution in terms of A, our gross is changing all the time, and B, The relative weightings among the four asset classes is changing all the time.
0: What is the team you have in place that's required? You're following all these different assets. You're underwriting them. You're also talking to the market and the banks to kind of figure out where there are opportunities. One
1: of the things that's great about the space is because it's so data heavy, it's pretty expensive business to run. So when you compare it to, say, equities, where anybody can start a hedge fund with $300,000 from their uncle sitting in their apartment and reading Barron's, and if they're good, they can eventually have a huge fund. We spend millions of dollars a year on data and on a team to sort of process that data. And then on each of the sector heads where they're reading the documents and they're parsing the structure and understanding this. So it's really difficult to do what we do under $500 million of AUM. It's pretty much impossible, in my opinion, to do it Properly. And to do it properly is to pay for all this data. What's interesting about it is none of it's insider information, but it costs money. Anyone can buy it, but it's not free. So that's very different than like reading 10Ks or or other stuff in the equity space, which is free for anyone to read. So we have a certain amount of barriers to entry in the space. I think, therefore, there's only a handful of dozen people really. And obviously, you have giant firms like Pimco that certainly do what we do. And and in some ways, they have a lot of resources we don't have. In some ways, we can be more impactful on a specific trade than they can be to a fund that we're managing. So that is, I would say, our relative edge. So we have a big enough team to do this appropriately. We have enough AUM to do that. And that is part of the business.
0: Where do most of those competitors sit?
1: Over time, a lot of talented people have left the street and set up their own shop. Some people have left the street and worked for these big multi-strats, which is a different kind of business model. There's maybe a dozen, two dozen hedge funds do what we do and a handful of mutual funds that are very sophisticated in this space. Another thing that's interesting to talk about is the secondary versus the primary market. Think about insurance companies, pretty active in our space in the primary market, not really active at all in the secondary market. When you buy a primary market asset, you're buying it, it's freshly rated. If it doesn't work out in the long run, you can sort of say, hey, when I bought it, it had just been rated whatever by Moody's. One of the things I've made money on for 30 years is that the rating's are very, very stale. And sometimes they're stale too good, sometimes they're stale too bad. But if you're somebody who's a new issue buyer and or your sort of incentive structure is different than ours might be, you don't really want to buy secondaries because secondaries now the credit rating is on you as opposed to on the rating agency. So a lot of times some of these more esoteric and illiquid things that were purchased by a small number of investors when they were bought, if somebody has to sell that investment in the future, for whatever reason, or the the person left the firm and the new person just wants to clean house and they want to start fresh and they they want to get out of whatever was bought before them. There's only a handful of people that actually bought it originally. And then a small number of people were like, hey, I'm going to do the work to understand this thing that was issued eight years ago, two years ago, whatever it may be and try to really understand how it works and how has it been working, meaning how is the collateral performed during that period of time. And so those can be really attractive situations where there's there's a seller for any of a number of reasons, and there's only a couple of people that are willing to buy that asset.
0: So as these markets change over time, we're certainly at an interesting economic and financial market period of time right now. Some years ago, you were able to look at the assets that you were mostly owning and see something that was very different from what other people saw. And I just would love to ask the question about what risks you're seeing in your markets today.
1: It's a great question. One thing that's scary about this is anybody can listen to this at any point in the future. And (laughs) and so it's scary to think, you know, for sure at some point, whatever I say right now is going to be wrong, even if at other times it's going to be right. So I would say that I'm pretty excited about the opportunity right now in securitized products. And, And the reason I say that is, I think that the structure of the market of the consumer writ large and structured products in general related to regulations post the crisis and whatnot is the U.S. consumer, he, she, they look a lot more like they did in 2000 or even at other points in history. And I would say the corporate sector looks as sort of levered or fragile as ever. People always fight the last war. is a saying you hear all the time. So and I don't know that the last war was the COVID war, but the last war being, if, if you say the GFC was the last war. And the GFC structure products, particularly mortgage-backed securities, were sort of the worst thing to be in, right? They blew up and they took a lot of other things down with them. But if you go back to the 2000 crisis, that was one where high yield blew up and tech stocks blew up. And structured products kind of muddled along and they did okay. And if you were long structured products and you were short high yield with some equity options as as sort of a a hedge kicker like I am now, you did amazingly well because structured products did all right and your hedges did phenomenally well because they went down, right? And and that's actually kind of what happened in the first half of this year, which is that structured products did okay. In aggregate, they were down a little bit, but the S&P was down a lot more. High yield was down a lot more, right? So if you were long structured products and you had hedges on, you could have made money. We were profitable in the first half of the year because of that. We made more money on our hedges than we lost on our longs. So when you ask me what I'm worried about, I think predominantly, I believe that structured products, if the first six months of this year was not the end of the correction, as some people say, but was the beginning of the correction, and it's going to be more like 2000 to 2002, which was like a three-year correction of, of markets going down and recovering, and then going down again and recovering. If we're in the beginning of that, I think that our strategy of being long structure products with hedges is going to do fine because I think our long book is going to do okay somewhere between modestly up and modestly down. And our hedge book is going to be modestly flat to modestly down if our long book is up modestly. And it's going to be up a lot if our long book is down a little, which is kind of what happened in the first half of the year. Now, when you ask what worries me, The world that we just came out of, the 09 to 2021 world, is not a good world for structured products. So a world where the Fed is focused on propping up financial assets is a world where our hedges are not gonna work. If we have a weak economy, but strong financial markets, that's not gonna be a good one for us, right? Because ultimately, when you think about our assets, they're some hybrid of real economy, financial economy, in the sense that in the short run, their pricing is generally driven by the pricing of other assets. right? So if high yield is going up, there's a positive bias on our assets to go up. If high yield is going down, there's a negative bias on our assets. But in the intermediate term, what matters for us is unemployment, home prices, things like that. And so if we have a world where the economy is doing okay, but financial markets are doing poorly, which is kind of what happened from 2000 to 2002, and what's happened so far this year, then we're going to have a world where our longs are going to be buffeted from time to time by the sell-off in broader markets. But ultimately, people are going to look at the delinquencies and losses. They're going to say these assets are going to be OK, and our hedges are going to do well. So I'm pretty confident of that because of what's happening with inflation and geopolitics and reshoring, that the Fed is moving away from a role of propping up financial markets to a role where they're going to be fighting inflation, to a world where the federal government is going to be more focused on helping regular people through a variety of programs, which they've already done, gas tax holidays and things like that. Those are environments that we should do well. But if we have a situation where unemployment soars and the stock market still goes up, that's a bad one for my strategy. So, And I think we're entering into a more of a volatile time in the economy right now. And, and like I sort of alluded to, where the Fed is going to be, instead of instead of a force for lower vol, they're going to be a source of higher vol. You're already seeing this with, with the waffling about different things about, are they going to ease next year or not? And obviously, not a year ago today, they said they weren't going to tighten at all in 2022. So what happens is these bonds are generally pretty levered. We're talking about we mostly buy subordinate parts of the capital structure. So bonds that have not binary outcomes exactly, but really levered outcomes, right? So bonds trading at 50. And if this, that, and the other thing happens, it's worth 75. And if things are a little bit worse than we thought, they're worth 25. So constantly you have, if you can put yourself in a situation where you you feel confident that the odds are skewed in your favor. So either it's 50-50, that it's either you buy something at 50 cents and it's 50% chance it's worth 100 and it's 50% chance it's worth 25. That's a great place to be. Or conversely, where you say, hey, I bought it at 50, and there's a 75% chance it's worth 75, and there's a 25% chance it's worth 25. That's a different way of the same thing, right? It's a different way of saying, hey, The odds are in my favor and because of the esoteric nature of it because of how leveraged they are because the fact that there's so much uncertainty right now about the path of interest rates in the economy are we having a recession or not is it going to be a minor recession or a massive recession because of the regulations on the banks about holding these assets from a capital charge perspective and dodd frank there's opportunities for us to be a liquidity provider so i think one thing that's very different today is we're running a much lower gross than we were before And by before i mean before This year, we historically as a firm, we're kind of 120 to 140 gross. And when you're 140 gross, it's difficult to be a liquidity provider when things go wrong. Our gross now has been more in the neighborhood of 90 to 110. And we're at a place where we feel strongly that if June wasn't the low, if there's another bout of selling and whatnot, that we'll be able to be a liquidity provider and make a lot of alpha there by being able to respond quickly, by having capital. And as the firm has grown, we have lots of different funds that have the ability to call capital at different times. If you can call capital when people are selling, and as a regular way hedge fund, that's a difficult thing to do, right? As a regular way hedge fund, actually your investors can call their capital back when they want, right? So when things are going awry, really ramping up your gross exposure is a tricky thing to do unless you've got it all right. So we've tried to address that as a firm by raising capital that can be called as opposed to it can be called away from us that we can call investors to give us that money. And we did that somewhat
0: successfully with some of these types of structures in 2020. All right. So before I turn to these closing questions that you haven't answered, I have to ask like, What was the experience of being portrayed in a movie like for you?
1: Well, first of all, the experience is not over. And I still, to this day, occasionally get emails from people who were like, I read the book or I saw the movie and I want to be your friend. Or can you give me advice? And I sometimes forward them to Mr. Lewis. So the beginning of the book, The Big Short, he said, well, he wrote Liar's Poker as a cautionary tale. He didn't want people to go into Wall Street, is what he thought. And people read that book, including me, and said, This is exactly what I want to do, right? (laughs) So at the beginning, the forward to The Big Short, he said, well, that's why I wrote The Liar's Poker, to get people to not do it. My hope is with this book that people won't want to go into this industry. And so when some of the more interesting emails that I get, I forward them to him. I'm like, you did it again. You wrote another book. So I'm married. I have four children. I'm not really interested in being particularly famous or anything like that. I don't have a big media presence. And it's weird at times when I'm checking into the airport and the person next to me hears my name and they they say, "Oh, you're the guy from the big short." Like I said, I get sort of emails from people that I've never met. I don't love that the parents of my children's friends feel like they already know something about me when we first meet. I don't love that. But I certainly don't think I was portrayed as somebody who wasn't smart. And so that I can't complain and like I said before, you can't really complain if one of the sexiest men alive
0: plays you in a movie. It's hard to complain about that. <laughs> All right, Greg, a couple last closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: Well, for kids, it's hard to have that much outside. I love exercise. I love reading. I like listening to podcasts while I'm exercising.
0: All good. What's your biggest investment pet peeve?
1: Intellectual dishonesty. When people sort of pitch something there's the downside is still a fantastic return. What do you not understand that you think that this can't go wrong, right? Because we you know, we invest in, in generally below investment grade assets, so they're not guaranteed to work or they wouldn't be rated double B.
0: You mentioned the sketch of one at the onset, but which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life?
1: I would say my father, who taught me the value of hard work and being honest and never forgetting where it came from. He wasn't really my boss directly, but a tough love from someone at the bank who had taught me- indirectly, you got to figure things out for yourself and you got to manage your own destiny. And I'd say this when I met people when I was at the bank or, or even here, like this isn't summer camp. Like we're paying you, you're not paying us. So like figure out, and that's what I learned from him, figure out how to add value. And then along the way, we'll train you as opposed to it's our job to train
0: you. What type of investment in your space do you gravitate to like a moth to a flame? I would say short, complicated, illiquid
1: that yields a lot. So where we feel that we can understand the risks and the risks are more than amply rewarded because of the complexity and because of the illiquidity. What
0: are your biggest blind spots?
1: Perhaps as a debt investor, I'm more focused on what can go wrong than what can go right. So it's important to understand the upside. And maybe there are times where I eschew things that have great upside because I'm focused on that they also have big downside.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: never forget where you came from, treat everybody the same. My father was great at that. He was conceived in Germany. He was born here. He grew up speaking German in the home. And, and eventually he had the modest amount of success and he never forgot where he came from. And he treated everyone the same. And I try to do the same.
0: All right, Greg, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life?
1: Yeah, I would say two things that are like the opposite. One, as it relates to Investing, and I think I exhibited the opposite of this during the subprime time. But, like, if you have conviction, sort of stick to it. And maybe earlier, I wish I had stuck to some things before. as it relates to running the business, I would say, you know, don't be afraid to make changes. I think in some cases, we gave people more time than we should have to sort of blossom.
0: Greg, thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time.